340. I would then ask that you consider with me another installment in that series of lessons that we've been considering on the Sunday evening opportunities that we've come together, in which we have interestingly decided to consider a bit about the scriptures and the subject of science. Previously, we've had two lessons already in that series, and this evening we will have the third one in that continuing series. The subject of science and the subject of the Bible, and we, as we have reminded ourselves, are often painted to be at odds one to the other. So much so that some are even willing to say that they are mutually exclusive. One cannot be a literal believer in the scriptures and an acceptor of the discoveries and the pursuit of science. In their opening lesson, we saw that that really is not a correct statement. There is no single fact of science in contradiction to the scriptures, not one. Now, that is not to say that there are not many presentations of science or theories of science or other presentations as it may relate to the subject that may contradict the scriptures, but no fact of science is at this point known to be in contradiction to any statement in the Word of God. Rather, our approach has been to hopefully increase our faith and build our faith by looking to see how that even in the Scriptures, God thousands of years before men and scientists discovered it placed various truths relating to science and only recently perhaps have scientists come to understand what God put in the Bible so, so very long ago. We might especially notice then in the opening lesson some of the basic groundwork of what constitutes science and the pursuit of knowledge that it involves and the standard that is the Holy Scriptures, that it is God's revelation of truth as stated in many texts such as 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 as also in John 17 verse 17. Last week, we especially applied that thought to astronomy and we saw that even as one considers the heavenly bodies that feel that... Uh, outer space region that, that's about us, we even notice that the Bible involves and even shares many things that are still known to be true scientifically, though scientists didn't discover that until many, many years after, in fact, the Bible was written. We reached the conclusion that meant that there had to be a writer of the Bible other than mankind, some being, and of course we know that to be God, penned these scriptures and housed the truth of God within it long before science ever came to understand it on its own. Tonight, as the subject implies, we'll look at yet another disciplinary area in science, namely biology tonight, and look specifically and ask some basic questions about, are there any truths biologically related in the scriptures that again were revealed by God centuries, perhaps millennia, before scientists come to understand and discover those things on their own? I hope, as we've noted before, that our lesson can thus be a very encouraging lesson as we think about how wonderful this book truly is. Whether it touches matters related to spiritual things like the plan of salvation, or whether it touches things that might be said to relate to science, what the Bible says is true. As we begin then the lesson this evening, might I ask you to consider, first of all, what biology is. And once we've somewhat identified that thought, we'll be ready to look at the scriptures that relate more interestingly to some of the foreknowledge aspects in that realm of study. Perhaps we can understand that students today, by and large, are required to take perhaps one, if not more, classes in the subject of biology. 
And really the meaning of the word is pretty simple. That prefix B-I-O just means life. That L-O-G-Y comes from a word that is logos, which means study of, in essence, or discourse related to. And so to put them together, biology is the study of life and all of the manifestations that relate to it. To put that differently, it is a discourse on the subject of life. Now, as our students and our youngsters are asked to study that particular subject or area, isn't it amazing to appreciate the breath easily appreciated by the subject known as biology? There are some classes in which plants are studied. Oftentimes, one considers that kind of study known as botany. On the other hand, animals are also studied in the purview of biology. That's known as zoology. And then there's also human studies in biology. As one takes classes in that various array in biology, one sees the myriad and the powerful array of known understandings as it relates to all these areas in life, be it plants, be it animals, be it human beings. In all those areas, one quickly appreciates the complexity. Anyone who's had a course in anatomy and physiology or who has had courses that relate to some of the internal workings of a single cell in the body know that those are not simple matters. They are complex, intricate things that in fact, taken in bulk in terms of a person or in terms of an animal, lead to the many characteristics that that animal has. The things it's able to do, the processes that it's able to undergo. The subject indeed takes students years to master much of what even now is known about it. And science continues to learn even more. I simply make a very simple statement to point out how rich and how amazing life itself really is. It is truly a marvelous thing to consider it in all of its powerful beauty and its workings. Those simple concepts perhaps lead us to see that when we discuss even the simplest kind of life, it is far removed from even the most sophisticated robot even the most sophisticated machine or device that humanity has ever constructed. And furthermore, those subjects of artificial intelligence that we hear from time to time today still do not hold a candle in intricacy and in complexity to the simplest kind of life that is yet known. Perhaps we can pause to wonder who designed the marvel of life. Did it come about on its own by some naturalistic process? It certainly doesn't seem reasonable to think so, does it? For if the best scientists and the best of those who understand the intricacies of programs cannot make anything even close to it, but yet these simple organisms that are known to be living, truly we might look into the scriptures then tonight and ask, what does the Bible reveal about biology to give us a richer and deeper appreciation of the beauty that is to be found in it? we, I'd say, would be remiss not to point out some of the grand benefits that the study of biology has revealed to us. We know what medicine is now able to be prescribed and the processes and procedures that doctors can, can in fact, perform on a patient. Well, biology and the study of it for a few hundred years has led to this point. But by the same token, in noting the goodness about it, perhaps, it would also be fair to note the very strainful baggage that often accompanies it in the form of evolutionary dogma. 
it's sad to open a biology textbook and often near the very beginning of that book to find that the bedrock on which biologists tend to want to present their material is on the foundation of evolutionary biology. Such is not wise, for there is no evidence to support such. But might we notice even tonight, five things found in the Bible that in fact are modern and well-known biological truths but they were found in the Bible hundreds, if not thousands of years before science ever came to, dis to, to in fact discover it. That kind of idea might lead us to begin in the opening chapter in the Bible. Isn't it fascinating to revisit that text that was read just a moment ago in Genesis chapter 1 and speak about that law of biogenesis? In fact, if one were to ask the very powerful question, where does life come from? Where did it arise, and how so did that come to be? I might submit to you that that still is a very perplexing problem for any evolutionist for the reasons that we're about to, to in fact, describe. In fact, consider the following with me. There was a time, several hundred years ago now, in fact, but there was a time when it was commonly thought that it was possible for life to arise from something that was not living. In other words, there could be some pile or some aggregation of material that was known not to be living, and at some time later one could come back and scrutinize or study and find something in that pile to be alive. There was a time when that was readily conceived, and it was believed by most all people. However, a few individuals began to study that with a bit more inquiry and a bit more assertiveness. For that had just been more or less accepted. And then with the work of such men as Reddy and Spallanzani and Pasteur and Verco, to name perhaps the four most prominent, this whole idea was overturned quickly and powerfully. In fact, from the very early experiments of these gentlemen, even till this day, it is now readily conceded what is now known as the law of biogenesis. And it simply says this, Life arises from pre-existent life of its own kind. A very simple statement, isn't it? Life comes from preceding life, and furthermore, that life only occurs by virtue of its own kind. Things that are not living do not give rise to things that are living. One cannot pile a bunch of rags out in a storage shed and come back days, weeks, or years later and find anything alive in it that did not arise in some fashion from something that was alive. Things that are not living cannot, as far as science has any evidence, bring about that which is alive. In fact, to this day, hundreds of years later, not one single exception to this biological law has ever been found. No wonder it's called a law then in science. Not a single exception is known. The law of biogenesis. And the word helps us to remember what it describes. Bio means life. Genesis means origin or beginning. The origin of life is itself life. There's no scientist that would argue that point. Not one. For there's no evidence that gives us to say anything contrary to it. Well, he makes mention though of biogenesis. We are now perhaps in a position to ask, how then can evolution ever be? If you think about the way that 
evolution is itself presented. By its very definition, it outlaws any supernatural activity such as the creative efforts of God. They claim that life somehow arose materially and naturally from what was not alive, directly contradicting the own accepted law of biogenesis. And today, scientists still have no way out, or the evolutionists, I should say, have no way out of that conundrum. And it's certainly amazing in a biology textbook to see on one page they will, in fact, lift high the claim of biogenesis. And then at some other point in the book, claim that if evolution happened, this had to be violated. It seems a bit contradictory, doesn't it? As you and I then open the pages of the Word of God, what does God's Word say about something that might relate to this? In that text that was read from Genesis 1, did you notice a number of times the prepositional phrase, after his kind, was found? Plants, on the third day of God's creative activity, God said they will bring forth after his kind. On day five, creatures in the oceans and those in the air will bring forth after their kind. On day six, land-dwelling animals will bring forth after their kind. That seems like, in fact, what we have just asserted, isn't it? Life comes only from life and that after its own kind, after its own nature. The Bible, in its opening declaration, thus after God initially, by miracle, created the initial forms in life, he thus decreed from their own, they will come about after his kind. That's in perfect harmony with what we have seen in the law of biogenesis, isn't it? And it was in the Bible all along. It's a wonderful thing then to consider whether it be plants, animals in the oceans, or animals in the air, or even animals that dwell on the land after their kind is the, bi is the key of biogenesis. Isn't it still interesting today the basic way you and I accept the law? We plant a garden and we plant a watermelon seed and feel sure that from that we'll grow a watermelon plant and from that we'll reap watermelon. Well, none of us have ever planted watermelon and reaped corn or planted watermelon and reaped okra. It simply doesn't work that way. And when two bears breed, they don't give rise to a cat or to a dog or to any other kind of animal except a bear. The law of biogenesis is thus well understood, at least in a practical way, and yet the Bible, after his kind, asserted it in the opening chapter in the Holy Book of God. The law of biogenesis, one marvelous truth of biology found in the opening chapter of the Word of God. But what about a second example from the field of biology also found in the Word of God? Could I ask you to consider a bit about the nature of blood? Yes, indeed, that five-letter word blood. The reason that that seems an interesting point is to ponder the differing ways that mankind at times have viewed the importance of blood. In fact, not very long ago, there were those who would claim that it was possible for that blood in an individual to become contaminated with harmful vapors or harmful substances and that it was needful to remove some of that blood in order for the person to regain health, a process known as bloodletting. Somewhat is an interesting point. Our first president met his death that way. Whoever the doctor was that thought that the president needed to be made well by virtue of removing some blood, ultimately that led to George Washington's death. 
But may we, in fact, revisit what has science now come to appreciate about blood? Blood is essential for life. It, in fact, is that which carries oxygen to the various cells in the body, and furthermore, it carries away the waste products from those cells as well. Blood is absolutely essential and vital for life. Thus, we might well wonder, what does the Bible say about that very topic and subject? In what way is blood presented? When you and I open the book of Leviticus and look at some prescriptions to that ancient Levite tribe, the one that was supposed to serve in the office of offering sacrifices, and who so often had to deal with the topic of blood. In Leviticus 17.11, the text there says, The life is in the blood. In other words, a person's vitality, a person's degree of necessity concerning blood is an important quantity. And today, of course, biology and science know that very well. Look at the careful way the blood supply in our land is monitored so that hospitals have a sufficient quantity of the right kinds of blood to supply to their patients. Blood is a vital thing. You and I today, of course, know that well, but how did Moses know it? over 3,000 years ago. He knew it because, because, of course, God told him what to write. It was God writing the premises behind the text in Leviticus 17.11, wasn't it? The life, God told Moses, is in the blood. And thus, one must guard carefully the aspects and the purity of that blood. And so even in that way, we can see various statements that God gave Moses about the purity of the way that sacrifices are to be done so that no contamination of humans could come by the contamination that might be possible in animal blood. Might we consider, though, briefly that these two examples have pointed out things known today in biology that were not thought by typical individuals then, but were, however, written in the Bible. Maybe a third example would also be in order. As we consider a third one, this one also is found in the Old Testament, but this time it's the book of Numbers. In the 19th chapter of Numbers, we read what may appear to be a very unusual set of procedures that were to be followed by certain individuals in ancient Israel. Let me attempt, without reading that chapter, to at least set the stage for the discussion. The issue was that when there was a corpse, a dead body, how was that to be dealt with and handled in the proper and right way? And one of the things that God gave Moses to instruct the children of Israel had to do with a water of purification mentioned in that chapter. And thus, when an individual had to come in contact with a corpse, maybe his parent, one of his parents had passed away or another member of the family, and thus there was the need to handle it, there was a water of purification that was to be employed. What did the water of purification consist of? And today, how might it relate to our current knowledge in biology? Might I submit that first, let's note the ingredients to that water of purification. I have chosen to briefly list them for us to consider. It consisted of the ashes of a red heifer. Not only that, it had within it the substance hyssop, the substance cedar wood, and finally, the substance known as scarlet. Now, if we pause and ask, what are those things, and in what way might they be useful for us to consider today, I've tried to at least write out what you and I might appreciate, especially in this part of the world, 
we may remember our grandparents or someone perhaps we have even seen to make something we call soap. Now if you ponder with me what was involved in that production, think about ashes. To this day, it's well known that ashes are a principal source of lie. Thus, the ashes of a red heifer would have been a wonderful source of lie for this water purification. But what about hyssop? Today, it's known that hyssop contains a substance called thymol, and in fact, it's probably an ingredient in some of the things that's in your medicine cabinet, and uh, in fact, at your house, for it's known to be an antiseptic. So here we have a substance involving lye and an antiseptic. But notice what else? Cedarwood. Cedarwood is known to be an astringent or an expectorant, meaning that it aids in the removal of phlegm from the human body. Thus, we have here a substance involving an expectorant, lye, as well as this uh, second idea of hyssop, this thymol product. Only one more to go. What about scarlet? That would have served as a binding agent to make this a solidified thing. And so with lye, with hyssop, with in fact scarlet plus that cedar wood. For all practical purposes, this water purification was a kind of soap. It was basically lava soap. You and I can go to a store and buy lava soap and we know how effective it is at removing germs and thus helping to maintain a degree of purity from the influence of what we would call germs. But now the question would be, nothing about germs was known as far back as the time of Moses. The microscope wasn't invented for over 2,000 years later. How did Moses know about germs? And how did he know to construct a water purification basically like a soap that could help cleanse one's hands and to in fact maintain a safeguardedness from that, that dead body? Well, of course, again, you and I know the answer. God gave those instructions, and he gave them in the form of that book of Numbers. That wasn't Moses' idea. Moses had no idea about things like that on his own. In fact, might we remember that Moses grew up in Egypt, and some of the most ridiculous kinds of scientific truths can be found in ancient Egyptian writings. Much of it looks, in fact, somewhat like witchcraft using various remedies and potions to cure certain things. And we know today there's not an element of truth in them. Moses didn't write anything like that. What he did write here, you and I can see the vitalness of it, the usefulness of it in helping to remove or at least to minimize the effect of germs, the water of purification. To consider this third one, isn't it amazing that you and I have seen in the opening example the law of biogenesis found in Genesis chapter 1? We've seen this matter of the life is in the blood found in Leviticus chapter 17. And now we've seen the water purification housed in the 19th chapter of Numbers. To look at all of these, we see the usefulness in terms of biology. But let us also look at yet another one that also has an interesting role to play is you and I consider the astounding character of the biological truths to be found in it. It has to do with the matter of circumcision. We today, of course, still understand the role that circumcision plays. It is a surgical procedure, isn't it? And in this surgical procedure, might we revisit what God had to say about it because there might be some useful biological information found within it. 
we must return to the 17th chapter of Genesis to read about circumcision. That's the first mention of it in all of the book of God. Even though today there are health professionals that will encourage it based on various health benefits of it, God instituted circumcision for the purpose of Abraham and his descendants as a sign of the covenant that he would make with them and with those descendants in a perpetual fashion throughout as long as that Old Testament would in fact remain binding. When you and I read though in Genesis 17 about the character of that circumcision, God not only specified that it was to be done, he even gave some specifics about when it was to be done. God was very specific in affirming that it was to be done to a baby boy on the eighth day of his life a young lad of only the age of eight. Notice he was far less than a year old, far less even than six months old, eight days. Perhaps you and I can ask today, what's the significance of the eighth day? We often know in the Bible the number seven is important, but what significance is there to eight? Could it be biologically related, I wonder? Let's try to put some pieces together and see what biology to today has come to understand about the subject of circumcision and day number eight. When a baby is born, that baby enters this world, of course, now freed from his or her mother. And one of the first things that scientists have come to learn in the study of the immune system of that baby is that there is a substance in the blood of a person known as prothrombin. From the day that baby is born, the prothrombin level plummets until day number three. By the time that baby is three days old, the level of prothrombin is only 35% of what normally will be the case in, the, in that baby's life. Now, why is prothrombin so important? Here's why it's important. Prothrombin is a critical component in the blood that aids it in clotting. Thus, if one has a scarcity of prothrombin, one, in fact, could die by virtue of bleeding to death. Prothrombin is a natural part, thus, in the plasma of the blood that is a critical and vital element in its clotting capability. And thus, if circumcision or any other surgical procedure were performed at an improper time on a baby, it could be deadly. Thus, certainly days one, two, or three would not be particularly good, but Interestingly, starting from day three, the prothrombin level begins to increase and rise. And when one reaches the eighth day of life, the prothrombin level will be the highest at that day than at any other day in the entire life of that person. It'll be at 110% of normal on the eighth day. Isn't that fascinating? That here we appreciate that God gave directions to Abraham millennia before prothrombin was known, millennia before biological considerations concerning it, and yet God said day number eight. Now Moses would never have known that on his own, that this prothrombin in conjunction with vitamin K is a necessary ingredient in the clotting of blood, and hence found in the book of Genesis you and I can now appreciate well over 3,000 years ago, God had written something that had importance in biology that scientists wouldn't learn until much, much later. Now, let it be quickly known that the word prothrombin doesn't occur in the Bible. That's something science has since discovered, but isn't it interesting that day number eight 
God specified. And the children of Israel maintained circumcision of baby boys on that day. And in fact, even our Lord, when Joseph and Mary brought him to do the proper things to him, we even appreciate that on the eighth day, Jesus himself was circumcised in accordance to the command that God had given to Abraham centuries earlier. The interesting feature, in fact, then about this teaches us again, there was some scientific foreknowledge, even biologically in the Bible, long before scientists discovered and learned about it on their own. I would hope that these concepts would give us great confidence and an increased faith appreciation for the wonderful truth found in God's Word on any subject that it touches. Maybe one final consideration biologically this evening. This one has to do with the very nature of human life itself. When you and I open the pages of God's Word, we see something extraordinary about the nature of human life. We in fact see that God gave commandment, Thou shalt not kill in the Old Testament. But he had no problem with the killing of an animal for food or the killing of an animal to offer a sacrifice. Even in the prescription of the Old Testament, there seemed to be something exceedingly distinct about animal life versus human life. There are those in science today who would tend to somewhat cloud that distinction. Sometimes we are told we're nothing but a glorified animal. We're nothing but another kind of animal. Let us not be misled. That is not true. Animals constitute one variety of the life that God made, but human beings constituted another. On the sixth day of God's creative activity, he did create various land-dwelling animals on the earlier portions of that day. But there is a rather dramatic distinction when he said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. To note the portions of Genesis 1 verse 26. Those statements about in our image after our likeness were not made of any animal, but they were made of Adam. And later, since woman came from man, the same would describe her. Human beings are made in the image and in the likeness of God. That gives to you and me an extraordinarily special nature and an extraordinarily special character. We are far removed from any animal. When one begins to ponder what it means to be made in the image and in the likeness of God, it's certainly quick and fair to say that doesn't mean that we physically look like God. For God is a spirit, John 4 verse 24. And in Luke 24, 39, a spirit does not have flesh and bones, so we don't physically look like God. But what that does mean is that we have in, at our disposal and in our character the capability of certain characteristics which God has. Now that's not to say we have nearly all of them and nearly to the degree He does. But in the same way that God can love, so too can you and I. In the same way God can show compassion and justice, so too can you and I. And in the same way that God will never cease to be. From the time you and I have the origin of our being in the womb of our mother, you and I will never cease to be. We are immortal spirits. The Lord told that to Martha, did he not? In John 11, on the occasion of raising Lazarus from the dead, he said he shall never die. 
And so, you and I merely appreciate that death is a transition to a different arena of life. But you and I will never cease to be. In that sense, being an immortal spirit gives us a type of character that at least can be likened to God's eternal nature. But as we consider the wonderful nature of the human body, I'm reminded, as we each might be, of Psalm 139, verse 14, where there's something about the nature of human life is presented. The psalmist said, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. When we consider the complexity of human life and the marvelous wonder that can be said to relate to it, I've only listed a very, very few matters that I hope would help us see that evolution is bound to have problems with these ideas. For example, consider the human heart as it relates to blood. The heart is a muscle, and hence the cells that comprise the tissues that make up the heart have to have blood. But yet the heart is what pumps the bloods. So how could the heart have evolved without the blood? But how could the blood have evolved without the heart? You see, they work together. One without the other would be useless, and so they could not have developed simultaneously. But yet evolution would require it. God said, I will praise, or the psalmist said, I will praise thee. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's just one example. Consider also the brain. There is still nothing that can compare to the intricacy of the human brain. Not only does it control the physical attributes of the body, but it also has within it the concept of self-awareness and consciousness, things that animals do not have. How did that ever evolve? Scientists still have not the slightest idea, and yet somehow we're told it must have happened. Can we not see in the character of the human brain itself and its control of the body that there is the creative effort of a grand designer, one who brought about that brain to function as it was desired and as the controls were provided? But maybe in the third place, may I ask, what about the stomach and the lining that's inside it? You see, the stomach contains acid, and we're each aware of that, I'm sure, at times that are not entirely pleasant to us. Question. If the stomach thus houses this rather corrosive acid, how could the acid have evolved without the proper lining in the stomach? But how could the stomach lining have evolved without the proper considerations of that which could have housed it? Again, there seems no good answer to that question, does there? All the evolutionists can say is, well, somehow it had to have happened. You and I know better for the character of the all-wise God of heaven stated the things that were needed and created Adam with the functioning properties of his stomach and the other things bringing about that life to have the capabilities and the characteristics of it. Maybe one final one, and that aspect of our lesson will we'll have drawn to its conclusion. The thought about the human eye. Various articles have been written till this day, and even Charles Darwin himself freely admitted that evolution has no hope of explaining the evolution of the eye. Even he admitted it. And today, scientists, various ones who are knowledgeable in biochemistry, have shown conclusively that the eye, with the interconnectedness of its parts, could not have evolved. 
may I then ask each of us to appreciate, well, we know it didn't need to evolve. God fashioned the eye. It works better than any camera. It is able to focus on its own, and it is able to make clear images on the retina, and the brain is able to interpret it even in minute details with great quickness. All of that our God made. The characteristics of biology perhaps can be drawn to a final statement with asking, the Bible affirms for us the answer to that question that many of our politicians are hesitant to answer. When does life begin? Does it begin when the mother gives birth to that baby? Or does it begin at the moment of conception? The Bible answers it in the, in, in the latter. In fact, the Bible testifies so powerfully and wonderfully that to take the life of that life that's in the womb of that mother is murder. Exodus 21 affirms that, as well as some of these texts that we will shortly consider. In a very brief way, notice Psalm 139, beginning in verse number 12. I'd like to read five of the verses from that chapter, Psalm 139, beginning in verse 12. And listen to what the psalmist describes as is in the womb of a mother. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee, when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. The psalmist said, You knew God all the members of my body, when as yet they were not formed in the womb of my mother. I was only beginning to be formed, and yet you knew all my members. You appreciated the thoroughness of the life that was me. And as that prescription was made, it only asks us to consider other passages such as Isaiah 49. Notice the opening verse in that chapter. One more time, the prophet extolling the statements, and this is the phraseology that he uses. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. Isaiah made note of the fact that even from my mother's womb and before, God made mention of my name. To the prophet Jeremiah, God made this statement in Jeremiah 1 verse 5. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. There, the preposition before is used. God said, before I formed you, before you were ever born, Jeremiah, I ordained you a prophet unto the nations. I sanctified you. Does that not lift unborn life to an exceedingly high stature? And yet today, when we consider that some tell us that that which is in the womb of a mother is not a human being, God said Jeremiah was a prophet ordained to be so before he, his mother ever gave birth to him. Think about those then that we are putting to death. The next great scientist, the next great preacher, the next great one who perhaps could help turn the world to godliness. And we kill him before he ever is even born. Abortion is murder. 
No wonder God said, Thou shalt not kill in Exodus 20, repeated verbatim in Deuteronomy 5, stated again by Paul in Romans 13. Even our Lord quoted that same passage from the Old Testament and affirmed it Himself, Thou shalt not kill in the 18th chapter of Luke. All of those things perhaps remind us one final time. What is it that's in the womb of a mother? Is it a baby or is it something that some scientists would prefer to call a fetus that seems to make us think it's not a human? I think it's interesting that in Luke one forty one, the word babe is used to describe what was in the womb of John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth. It was called a babe, whatever it was. But isn't it interesting, that very same word is used to describe Jesus after Mary gave birth to him. The same word that described John in the womb of Elizabeth is used to describe Jesus after Mary gave birth to him. It was a babe in both cases. It is a human being that's in the womb of a, mother, of, of a lady, isn't it? And it stands to reason, and if we will think about it, doesn't it? Thus, as we appreciate some truths about biology that have been stated in the Bible all along, it can only help to encourage us to appreciate even better the wonderful declarations of the Word of God, whether it be touching matters like science or the marvelous wonders of the heaven that awaits those that are the faithful. In concluding tonight's lesson, would it not be fair to say that biology is an amazing field of study? It challenges the mind and helps one see the beauty of what God has fashioned and made. Inasmuch as biology is the study of life, and inasmuch as that life is given by God, we should make certain to found our thoughts of biology on the truth of God's Word. We have attempted in five examples tonight to do that, be it in the matters of biogenesis, where life began, be it in the matters related to the water of purification, or that life is in the blood, or that of circumcision, or even the beautiful complexity of human life and how it's different than animal life. This evening, as you think about your spiritual life, how do you stand? Are you spiritually alive, or are you spiritually dead? Paul stated in Ephesians 2 verse 1 that those who are in trespasses and sins are dead. Thus tonight, it's possible for you and I to be alive in the flesh physically, but yet be dead spiritually. Is that descriptive of you? If you've never become a Christian, but yet you know that Jesus died for you, and you know that you're in sin, then you're spiritually dead. You need to act upon that tonight. The waters of baptism behind me are prepared and ready. We could assist you in your response to the gospel. If you have become a Christian at some point, but no longer are a faithful one, come back to your first love. Come back to the one who shed his blood for you. If we could be of assistance in aiding you to become a Christian by virtue of your confession and your baptism, or in rededicating your life to Jesus through prayer, we could be more than honored to be of assistance. We would ask that, oh, you let us know what needs to be done, even now, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.